Now, when I told Pastor Anwar that I was shortening the new members talk that, that I just gave, he jokingly said that that means I would be able to fit an extra Charles Spurgeon quote in the sermon, which is a great suggestion. Uh, and so let's start off with one this morning. It's actually uh, the quote that I have on one of my coffee mugs. In the lectures that he gave to his pastoral residents, um, he said these words, If we had to preach to thousands year after year and never rescued but one soul, that one soul would be a full reward of all our labor, for a soul is of countless price. It's a bold statement. It's an encouraging statement for a preacher. That's why I have it on a coffee mug. So I'd be reminded by it. But, but for Spurgeon to say such a statement, it, it meant that he understood something about value. He understood the worth of someone created in the image of God to be priceless. And similar with the psalmist's words in Psalm 84, as he declares, Better is one day in the courts of my Lord than thousands elsewhere. Right? He understood that a moment with God is of more value than thousands of other experiences. Now, as we look to the letter of James, we'll see that he develops the Christian understanding of faith in many ways. The importance of faith, the nature of faith, the purpose and the expectation of faith. As our series is titled, Faith is a Faith that Works. For it to be true, it must be active, and it will bear fruit. Now, in the opening of this letter, James wants us to understand the value of faith. Right? He will present the importance of a maturing faith, and the means by which faith matures are trials. Understanding value is important here because, as we'll see, trials and difficulties will come. And James explains their purposes are for strengthening our faith. But if we don't understand that faith is something that's important and of great value, then trials will only bring difficulties without any growth and without any benefit in our lives. And so our main point this morning is this. A mature faith is to be prized and pursued. A mature faith is to be prized and pursued. And I hope that as we learn to prize our faith, that we'll desire to see it grow and mature. Verse 1 serves as an introduction and an opening to this letter. And then verses 2 through 18, kind of that next or that first section after the introduction, can be divided into four sections. And I'm, I'm calling them uh, this morning four movements. Now, that might be because I was listening to classical music as I was preparing the sermon all week long. Uh, but, but you will see that there is movement taking place. We look at trials, verses 2 to 4. Then we move our eyes and look to God, verses 5 through 12. James then will bring us back to look to self, verses 13 to 16. And then once again, we look to God as we close the section, verses 17 and 18. For those taking notes, uh, I will never repeat those again. So if you didn't get them, no, I'm joking. I will, I'll repeat those here in just a bit 
and so that way you can follow along with the outline. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, not because it's something we should do, but something that we recognize before we approach God through his word that, that he alone can give us the eyes to see him, that we need his help and his blessings. Let's pray together now. Father, give us eyes to see you. Father, give us ears to hear your voice this morning. Speak to us through your word as you are faithful to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And so the first truth that we see here is that trials will come. This isn't a hypothetical situation. James isn't saying if, but when. Whenever you experience various trials. And so we also see that trials will look different. We'll experience different kinds of trials in our own lives and throughout the, uh, our, our lifetime. But also, my trials may look different than your trials. And so, yes, James is speaking to your situation. The small ones, the ones that might kill you, they all apply here. And notice how he starts off. Consider. Consider. That word is holding a lot of weight in this instruction of his. James isn't telling us how to feel about trials, but how to think. He, he's calling us to think differently. Now, this isn't the, about the power of positive thinking. Right? If you think that trials are fun, then you'll be okay. You'll just, you know, ignorance is bliss. No, not, not at all. James isn't discounting the reality of hardships in our lives. And he's not telling us to pretend that trials are great. No, he wants us to consider that trials are more than our first impression of them. Trials are more than our first impression of them. That's why I said that he wants us to think differently. Trials are generally hard. They often come at the worst of times. And so our first thought is, how do I get out of this? How, how can I avoid this trial and bring it to an end as quickly as possible? And so, again, this goes back to our understanding of value and worth. A child who doesn't understand the value of money will gladly exchange one $100 bill for 20 coins, right? And so we're called not to react to trials based on how they first feel because there is great benefit to various trials, Maturing faith, a growing faith. James wants us to see that trials are part of God's good purposes for his children because God uses them to bring us to maturity. There's two things in verse 4 that I want to point out. Uh, full effect and complete. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete 
lacking nothing. And so the way that we respond to trials will determine the effect they have. Trials can have no effect or, or little effect or full effect. And if we learn to see trials as opportunities for our faith to grow and to mature, then they will bear great fruit in our lives. If we find ourselves resisting and fighting, we're complaining and running away throughout the entire process, but they won't bear their full effect. Now, the second idea of being complete is really the key to understanding the book of James. James wants us to be whole. Some translations use the word perfect instead of complete, but the idea generally is about wholeness, being complete. And not just spiritual wholeness, because the Bible doesn't divide between the spiritual and the secular. James, in his letter, is calling Christians to long for and to pursue the full and complete life available to us in Christ. And we're going to see that develop throughout the letter over these next two months. We endure trials all the better, not only when we see that it strengthens our faith, but when we understand that faith is to be prized, is to be seen as precious. If we don't prize our spiritual position and relationship, then our aim will always be to escape and to avoid the difficulties of life. And again, that's because we understand that the best life is one of ease based on our own understanding. But to see faith as a prize and a gift of the highest worth, we will desire that God matures our faith, no matter what that may bring. And so, how does faith grow and mature? James tells us that trials are necessary for faith to grow. And the reason trials are necessary is because faith needs something to push back against it. I like how Pastor Mark Dever uh, from Washington, D.C. says it. He says, when all that we do, we can do on our own strength, how will we ever learn to rely on God? When all that we do, we can do on our own strength, how will we ever learn to rely on God? And, and that's why we are to count these various trials as joy. Yes, there is difficulty and suffering, but sadly, our world is filled with it. Suffering isn't just a Christian experience, but a human experience. And yet for the believer, hardships and trials draw us closer to God, and so we're called to consider it all a joy, a great joy. I know that in your life you've seen God's faithfulness and we will continue to see God prove himself to us. But it's not only about that. Through trials, we are being transformed and conformed into the image of his son. Now, because trials are just that, they're trying, right? They're, they're difficult. We need to look to God. And so our second movement is look to God. Verses 5 through 12, but I want to kind of break it up, so let's read verse 5 first. James writes, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, 
who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Making the right decision when everything is good and fine is, is hard enough as it is. And so we know that it's much more difficult when we're in the middle of a trial. And so the thing that we need, wisdom, to be able to make right choices, we don't have. And so James turns our eyes to God. God is for us. We need to know that. We need to remember that. One commentator said that verse 5 can be summed up in three words. Simplicity, availability, and liberality. Simplicity, availability, liberality. We need wisdom, so what, what do we do? Ask God. It's, it's simple. Ask for the thing that you need. Availability speaks to God's openness to us. Right? Friend, you don't need to wait around for someone who understands Christianity uh, better than you do in order to help us figure out how we can get through this trial or how we can approach God. No, God is ever-present, and we can approach Him directly through prayer. And, and I love the description of God's liberality. Anyone who asks will be given. He gives generously and liberally because He is the source of all wisdom. And James says He gives ungrudgingly. What that means is that when we ask for wisdom, it's, it's, it's not like God only gives us because he's God and he knows that he should, but he doesn't really want to. That's not how God works. Now, I don't know how you eat your meals, whether it's uh, on, served on a plate or a sandwich, however, however it is, whatever meal, I eat mine strategically. I am mindful of that last bite. I work an entire meal for that final bite. I got lots of amens. Head, you're, you're nodding your head. And it's, it's happened more than once that one of my boys would ask for a bite of my food when all I have is one last bite. Now, of course I do it. I love my children more than the food I eat. I would say that off record as well. And so, of course, I'll give them my last bite. I do it because it's good. It's right, but never because I want to. I give that last perfect bite that I labored for and prepared grudgingly. But that's not how God gives to his children. He gives generously and with joy to all who ask. Look with me as we continue to uh, read through this first chapter, verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now, James isn't condemning the person who asks questions or struggles to believe. He defines what he means by doubter when he describes this person as double-minded. Uh, it's really an interesting word in, in the Greek, and, and it's likely that James even coined that phrase, this idea of being double-minded. James is describing someone who is divided. 
not whole. A, A person who is trying to live in more than one direction at the same time. This is a person who looks to God's word and then also seeks out other wisdom and tries to make it all work. But valuing many things means that in turn you value nothing. And James tells us, and we know from our own experience, that living this way makes us unstable in all our ways. Verses 9 through 11. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and, together with a scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its, because, sorry, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now, at first glance, the first read-through, this seems out of place. I, I agree with you. This was actually one of Martin Luther's critiques of James. Uh, he said that James was, uh, quote, throwing things together chaotically. But is this just random? Is he just distracted? And, oh yeah, I want to talk about this, and let me jump about to this next thing. No. Remember that James knows his audience. Later in the letter, James addresses some challenges among believers uh, in regard to wealth and and lack of wealth. And so, uh, in in one way, this is a bit of an acknowledgement to the hearers of this letter that he knows that some of their trials, some of the hardships they're going through have to do with wealth and lack of wealth and what that looks like in in the life of the church and the community of believers. But also, this section is very much in line with the theme. In times of trial the natural response is to see how to get through this hardship on our own. That's kind of our our, our natural response. And so it's common to find relief in your financial situation if it's good and feel worried when it's not. But James is saying, don't look here or there, but look to God. Don't look at what you have or don't have. Look to God. If you're poor, Remember that you have been exalted with Christ. Remember your heavenly riches and your eternal position. If you're rich, remember Jesus' humiliation. Be humbled to know that your wealth, though it might give you position in this world, has no value when it comes to your salvation cannot add to your position in Christ. For those who don't think they're anything, they are somebody in Christ. And for those who think they're something special, they are called to remember that their only boast is knowing Christ. You see, and I know you know this, it's easy for us to find our identity in the things that we have or don't have. But our boast as Christians is Jesus. And this is the message of the gospel, isn't it? We have nothing in and of ourselves to boast in. All that we can boast in is who we are and what we have in Christ. Let's keep reading. Look with me to verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised 
to those who love him. For us to persevere through hardships, we are to prize our gospel position, and we endure because we love him. And what we realize more and more is that as firmly as we're holding on to God in the midst of those trials, he is the one who's actually holding on to us. For those who love God, James says, we will receive the crown of life. What's that? Now, some believe that there are material rewards in heaven. There are five different crowns that are listed in the New Testament. And and some believe that based on the way we live this life, that we will earn those crowns and these treasures. And I I can see the biblical reasons of why someone would would think that, but but I'm I'm not so sure. The most common way the word crown was used is for an athlete. Not a royal crown, but a wreath that's given and worn by the victorious athlete. We can think of the Olympics. And so I I think the best interpretation here is that James is using figurative language. It's not that we're given a physical crown that's, that's called the crown of life. But just as an athlete is crowned as victorious, we are crowned with life. The same word in a very similar context is used by Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 2. He is also speaking to suffering Christians and he tells them to be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. And so life is is what they will receive. And, And here's the thing. James will develop this more in the letter. Some hardships will result in death. And the way to endure is to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing and believing there is eternal life waiting for us. Again, this isn't a call to go out and search trials. I want more faith, and so let me put myself in really difficult situations. No. It's a consideration that mature faith is to be prized because as our faith matures, we see Jesus all the more. Third movement, look to self. James 13 through 16, chapter 1. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, because since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So James is acknowledging that not only will there be uh, external struggles in life, but also internal ones. It's It's a clear call not to be deceived. And the deception is to think that these temptations come from God. And James is saying they never come from God. They come from within. Now, I don't know about you, but as you hear this message in God's word, can can you hear how different this message is from the message of the world? The wisdom of the world calls us to look within ourselves for the solution and for salvation. But the word of God is telling us that we're the problem. Contemporary theologian Taylor Swift says it this way. It's me. Hi. 
I'm the problem. It's me. There, there's truth there, isn't there? It's, it's hard to admit, but we know that it's true. We want to blame someone else for our problems and failures, and often we point the finger at God and we blame him for our situation or our challenges or the, t- the temptation that we have. But the evil that's trying to draw us away is our own. In preparing, I was helped by the example of failing an exam. How many of you have, and I'm joking, I'm not going to ask if you've ever failed an exam. You can, we can talk about that later. But whether you have or you haven't, who's at fault? You can't blame the teacher for setting the exam. You were given the lectures, the necessary reading, the responsibility to study was yours. And so who's to blame if you did poorly? Listen to this. The exam was the occasion for the failure, but it wasn't the cause of it. Sam Albury said that. See, the exam provided the opportunity to show the failing, but we don't blame the exam. Oh, it, was the, it was the exam's fault. No. It just was used to show the failure. And so as we look to our own lives, our circumstances may be the occasion for our sin, but they're never the cause of it. And again, notice James tenderness as he addresses his spiritual brothers and sisters, right? Don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. Don't blame God for your sin. You're deceiving yourself when you say that. But it's also a warning to them not to be deceived that their sin won't lead to death. Now, I I don't know the temptations that you have. They may be the same as mine. They, they, They may be different. But they come to us promising us life, don't they? They come disguised as comfort and relief. They present themselves as harmless. And we're made to believe that we can control our sin, whatever it may be. But they will grow out of control and will end in death. Don't be deceived, James says. J.C. Ryle has written these wise words of warning. Habits, he says, like trees, are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling, but a hundred men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. We think we have control of it, and so we try to control control it, but as it grows, it will take root, and it will be nearly impossible to uproot. Again, James here is showing us that all of this is connected in order to bring a life that is whole, a life that is complete. And as our faith matures, we're we're able to resist temptation better and endure trials better. And then James tells us after we look to ourselves, let's go back and look to God. So our fourth movement this morning, our final section, James Chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we 
would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There, there's a double deception to avoid. Right? Don't blame God as the one who tempts. That would be a self-deception. But also, don't forget that every good thing comes from God. James wants us to see that within ourselves there are evil desires and temptations. But from God, there's goodness. There's grace. We can too quickly forget how bad we are. And just as quickly we can forget how good God is. And, and here's the thing. We're not pursuing faith for the sake of faith itself. We are pursuing God. It's the object of our faith that's most important here. And that's what James is doing in the beginning of this letter, but will be developing throughout to look to God. And our faith will grow. There's an old proverb that says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work. But rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Don't tell them this is what a ship does. This is how you build it. Here's the blueprints and here's the plan. Here's what we need. Here's what you need to do. Tell them the beauties of the sea, the wonders that will await them. And the more that they grasp that, they're going to find their way. They're going to build a boat. They're going to make it out there because of the vision that's been cast so clearly. And that's what James is doing. He, he wants us to see God in all of his beauty. He wants us to remember the one who gave us life and gave us eyes to see him. And, and as we close, I, I love the description that James gives of our God. It's beautiful and, and theologically rich. He, he calls God the Father of lights. What do you think that speaks to? What speaks to God is the Creator. He's, he's the one who spoke light into the dark world. He's a God who doesn't change. He's the source of all our stability. The stability that we're longing for God is that source and that foundation. And the, the contrast of imagery is, is also so good here. He's the father of lights, not like shifting shadows. And what do you think of when you think of shadows? You think of deception and fear. That's not the case with God. And when we look to God, we are reminded of what's important. We're encouraged to prize the eternal over the temporal. We're to seek after life in God and not death in the world. We're called again to prize what God has given us as most precious, the faith to know him. The only solution to a life that leads to death is a new life. And the cycle of one birth ends in death, right? We just read that. Then what's needed is a new birth. Jesus tells Nicodemus the same thing in, in John chapter 3. And this brings us back to the idea that we have nothing to boast in except that we are found in Christ. Look with me again to verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us birth. 
Friends, the work of salvation is all of God's doing. None of it comes from us. We have two uh, sisters in the church who are pregnant, and we pray for a safe and healthy delivery. And when you give birth, your child will have had no part in that at all. And your husband has a very little part, or not at all. Not when it comes to birth, right? The child didn't choose to be born. They didn't help with any part of their birth. It's all the mom. And it's the same with spiritual birth. We boast in Christ alone because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Friends, the life that we have is a gracious gift by God. And the means of this new life, as we see in verse 18, is the word of truth. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who are in Christ, the end will be life and not death. How can James say this with such certainty? Because Jesus is alive. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, and in his dying, he defeated death. And and as God raised him from the dead, he finished everything that needed to be done for us to be made right with God. So the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to work for your salvation, which is impossible in, in itself anyway. The good news is if you put your hope and your trust completely in Jesus for salvation, that you will share in his life. And I pray that you would believe that if you don't. And I pray that we as a church would fix our eyes on Jesus, who has given us our life, who is the substance of our life, and believe him to be the finisher of our life and our faith. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, how marvelous are your ways and your works. We recognize this morning that there's much to learn, much to know. And yet, I pray that you would help us to leave this church, this gathering this morning with our eyes fixed on you. Lord, help us in the trial that we are going through now to believe that you are faithful, that you have provided for our greatest need and you will provide for what we are going through now. Prepare us for the trial that will come next. Help us to see you in our suffering. We thank you for the gift of grace, for the gracious gift of new birth and life. And we pray that we would bring glory to your name in the way that we live, both in the joys and peaceful times and also in the hardships that will come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.